Some additional Quranic verses relevant to jihad. At this occasion, it seems appropriate to record various other verses of the Holy Quran on jihad by the sword, which were revealed to the Holy Prophet ﷺ from time to time. The reason being that they shed such light on the circumstances of these early Islamic wars as cannot be attained anywhere else. Allah the Exalted states, O ye Muslims, and fight in the cause of Allah against those who fight against you, but do not transgress, because Allah loves not the transgressors. And fight those disbelievers who fight against you wherever you meet them and drive them out from where they have driven you out i.e. whenever they desire to forcefully abolish your influence oppose them undoubtedly the persecution which these people are inflicting is far worse than killing and fight them not in the area of the haram but if they initiate war against you then undoubtedly you should also fight them therein such is the requital for the ungrateful. And if the disbelievers desist, they know that surely Allah is most forgiving, merciful. And ye Muslims, fight the disbelievers until there is no persecution in the land and religion is freely professed by Allah, i.e. there remains no fear of anyone except God in the matter of religion. And every individual can profess any faith that he so desires with freedom of conscience. But if these disbelievers desist from war, then you should also desist immediately. Remember, no hostility is allowed except against the aggressors. The purport of this verse is very clear as well, and it becomes evident that Muslims were only given permission for jihad against those people who fought against them in a matter of religion and desire to revert them from their faith at the dint of the sword. Moreover, the Muslims are also ordered that if these disbelievers desisted from war, then they should also stand down immediately. Furthermore, the wisdom behind war has also been mentioned in this verse, and it is so that the persecution no longer remains in the land and religious freedom may be established. Then he states, And if these disbelievers incline towards peace, then, O Messenger, you should also incline towards it, and put thy trust in Allah. Surely it is he who is all-hearing, all-knowing. Then he states, And if any one of the idolaters wish to come into your protection in order to investigate religion, then let him come. Then convey him to his place of security in your protection. Then he states, and those who have believed but have not migrated, i.e. they had, do not support you in their afflictions, are not entitled to your political friendship. Albeit, if they seek your help in the matter of religion, then it is your duty to help them, except against those disbelievers between whom and yourselves there is a treaty. And O ye believers, be aware that God the exalted sees what you do. Then he states, And fulfill the covenant, for surely you shall be answerable to God with respect respect to the covenant. Then he states, Allah forbids you not, respecting those who have not fought against you on account of your religion, and who have not driven you forth from your homes, that you be kind to them and act equitably towards them, and show benevolence. Surely Allah the Exalted loves those who are equitable and benevolent. Allah the Exalted only forbids you from befriending those who have fought against you on account of your religion, and have driven you out of your homes, and have helped others in driving you out and whosoever makes friends of them it is these that are the transgressors then he states O ye who believe establish equity and justice in the world for the sake of Allah and let not a people's enmity incite you to act unjustly towards them rather be always just and equitable even with your enemy for justice and equity are requirements of virtue and fear Allah and remember that Allah closely watches over your deeds
some fundamental narrations relevant to the jihad by the sword. The above is an exposition by the Holy Quran, and after a Quranic elaboration, there remains no need for any further explanation. However, in the consideration that lest a person be led to doubt that perhaps the general historical accounts is at odds with the Quran, at this juncture it seems appropriate to include such narrations as shed fundamental light on the initial wars of Islam. Thus it is narrated that the Holy Prophet would say to the companions, O ye Muslims, you should not desire to fight the enemy, and remain desirous to the peace and security of God. If, however, contrary to your desire, you are compelled to fight an enemy that then demonstrates steadfastness. This clearly substantiates that despite the fact that an announcement of war had been made by the disbelievers, the Holy Prophet had accepted their challenge and that war had begun. The Muslims were still ordered not to desire fighting even in the sub-conflicts of this war. Albeit, if they were confronted by the enemy, then they should fight valiantly. Then it is narrated, It was inquired of the Holy Prophet that one individual fights in order to demonstrate his courage, another fights due to family and tribal indignation, and another fights to show off. Which one from among them would be deemed as fighting in the cause of Allah? The Holy Prophet responded, None of them. Rather, only that person would be considered as fighting in the cause of Allah, who strives to uproot the efforts of those disbelievers who wish to suppress the religion of Allah, the exalted, so that the religion of God emerges victorious over these efforts of the disbelievers. Then there is a narration that Barira narrates that whenever the Holy Prophet would dispatch a company, he would advise its commander that when you are confronted by your enemy, i.e. you encounter a nation against whom a war has broken out, invite them to three options before the commencement of fighting. If they accept even one of the three, then do not fight them. First and foremost, invite them to Islam. If they believe, then accept their proclamation of Islam and withhold your hand from them. Then encourage them to migrate to Medina and tell them that if they migrate, great, they shall be endowed the rights of the Mahajireen, and upon them shall be the responsibilities of the Mahajireen as well. If they do not agree to migrate, then inform them that they would be deemed as having entered Islam. But they shall not receive the rights of the Mahajireen, because these rights can only be attained through jihad in the cause of Allah. If they reject your invitation to Islam altogether, then tell them to pay a tax and accept the rule of the Islamic government. If they accept this option, then do not fight them. However, if they refuse, then fight them in the name of God. Then it is narrated that... Harith bin Muslim bin Harith relates from his father that the Holy Prophet once sent us on a campaign. As we reached out our point of destination, I spurred on my horse and proceeded ahead of my companions. When the people of the tribe noticed me, they became frightened due to the sudden attack and began to show humility. Upon this, I invited them to Islam and they became Muslim. At this, some of my weaker companions began to reproach me, saying that I had deprived them of the spoils of war. When we returned to the Holy Prophet, the people informed him of this occurrence. The Holy Prophet called me and praised my actions, saying, You have done a very good deed. Then he said that God has appointed such and such spiritual reward in your favor for every member of this tribe. In the fervor of this happiness, he said, Come, I shall dictate a certificate expressing my pleasure so that my pleasure may always remain with you. 
As such, the Holy Prophet dictated the certificate for me and placed his seal upon it. Then it is narrated that Asim bin Khuleb relates from his father that an Ansari companion narrates that we set out on a ghazwa with the Holy Prophet. On one occasion, the people were struck by severe hunger and became very much distressed, since they had no provisions with them. Upon this, they caught a few goats from a flock, slaughtered them, and began cooking them. Our pots were boiling with their meat when the Holy Prophet arrived. The Holy Prophet immediately upset our pots with his bow and angrily began grinding the pieces of meat beneath his feet and exclaimed, Plunder is no better than carrion. This is a narration of such people about whom it is alleged that God forbid they were given teachings of plunder and pillaging. It is my belief that if today a European army is faced with such circumstances where their provisions are exhausted and soldiers become restless in hunger, taking possession of the goats of a grazing flock would be a minor thing. Who knows what else they would declare as being lawful. Then it is narrated, Abu Huraira narrates that a person came before the Holy Prophet and submitted, O Messenger of Allah, there is a man whose actual intention is jihad in the cause of Allah, but the thought crosses his mind that he would also receive some wealth and riches in war as well. There is no harm in this, is there? The Holy Prophet responded, there is no spiritual reward whatsoever for such a person. That a person repeated his question three times in astonishment, but the response of the Holy Prophet remained the same. That there is no spiritual reward whatsoever for such a person. This hadith proves that the intention of an individual who partakes in jihad should be purely religious, and even if the slightest thought of anything other than the defense of religion arises in his heart, such a person becomes deprived of spiritual reward. It is absolutely unlawful for a warrior to hope for spoils and worldly wealth and riches. Then it is narrated, Those warriors who set out to fight in the cause of God and they acquire spoils as a result of war, two-thirds of the reward in the hereafter is decreased, and they shall receive only a third portion of the reward. However, if they do not attain any spoils, then they shall receive their full reward in the hereafter. This hadith is more clear than the previous hadith because it has mentioned that if a person participates in fighting purely with the intention of jihad in the cause of Allah and there is no trace of worldly desires and then he consequently receives the wealth of spoils as well without having any such thought or expectation since he has received a portion of the wealth of this world, for this reason his reward in the hereafter is decreased. However, a person who goes forth purely with the intention of jihad, but does not receive the wealth of spoils at all, he shall be worthy of a complete and full reward. As such, where the previous hadith merely fosters a distaste in the hearts of the companions for worldly wealth, this hadith instills a distance and a kind of hatred. In the presence of such a teaching, not only would a true Muslim abstain from even bringing the thought of spoils, etc. to heart, rather he would even avoid in so far as possible occasions of acquisition of spoils. His true desire and effort 
would be that in one way or another he did not receive spoils, so that his spiritual reward of jihad was not decreased. Therefore, aside from those people who were weak, the existence of whom can be found in more or less every nation, but who definitely existed in far less a number among the community of the companions, this verity was understood well by the companions, and they would strive to act accordingly. Hence, we have already seen in the narration of Abu Daud how Muslim bin Harith converted an enemy tribe by inviting them to Islam, instead of attacking them from spoils. As such, he consequently remained deprived of spoils. The Holy Prophet ﷺ greatly praised this deed of his and endowed him a certificate expressing his pleasure. Then there's another narration of Abu Dawood that on one occasion when the Holy Prophet was about to set forth from Medina on a Ghazwa, an elderly Ansari provided a mount, etc. for poor companions. Wathila bin Aska. After jihad, Wathila bin Aska came to Ka'ab bin Ujra and said, Allah the Exalted has granted me these camels and my share of spoils. Please take your share. Ka'ab responded, O oh nephew, may Allah make this blessed for you. I had no intention of spoils. Rather, my desire was a spiritual reward. And thus he refused to accept his share. Then there's a narration that a Bedouin accepted the Holy Prophet and accompanied him in a ghazwa. When some spoils were acquired, the Holy Prophet set aside his share as well. When he learned of this, he presented himself before the Holy Prophet and said, O Messenger of Allah, you have put aside my share. By God, I did not become a Muslim with this intention. My intention was that in the cause of Allah, an arrow might pierce me here, pointing towards his throat, and I may be admitted to paradise. The Holy Prophet stated, If this desire truly desires such an end, then Allah shall fulfill his desire. Sometime after fighting ensued and the individual was martyred by an arrow to the throat, when the companions brought him to the Holy Prophet, he inquired, Is this the same person? The companion said, Yes, the Messenger of Allah. The Holy Prophet responded, God has fulfilled his desire. After this, the Holy Prophet endowed his own robe to serve as his shroud and especially prayed for him. It is a thousand pities that in the presence of these testimonies, there are some people who, without fearing God, raise allegations upon the Holy Prophet and his companions that in these wars, their purpose was pillaging, plunder, and the acquisition of worldly wealth. Manner of War in Arabia To fully understand the battles between the disbelievers and Muslims, it is also necessary to recognize that the wars of Arabia took on two forms. Firstly was what is referred to as a feud in the English language. That is to say that when war broke out between two Arabian tribes, until there was a formal reconciliation between the two, they were considered as being in a constant state of war. Upon finding an opportunity, they would fight with one another at intervals and at times these wars would carry on for very long periods of time. As such, the Battle of Basus, the mention of which has passed in the first volume of the book, was fought in the same manner, at intervals over a period of 40 years. History reveals that some wars even lasted for a 100 years. However, it was not a custom in Arabia to fight without breaks. The reason for this seems to be that, firstly, since the every individual of the tribe was a warrior, there was no formally assembled independent army. For 
this reason, the tribes of Arabia could not pursue their wars continuously due to their other businesses. They were compelled to fight at intervals. Secondly, since every individual bore his own expenses in war, and usually there was no national funds available for this purpose, this individual monetary burden forced the Arabs to enter the field of battle with breaks. In order to carry forward this intermittent warfare, at times, a practice which was also employed was that after a battle it would be decided there and then, that now they would meet again at such and such a time and at such and such a place, and in this way this practice would continue. As such, on the occasion of Uhud, Abu Sufyan made a similar commitment with the Muslims, due to which the Ghazwa of Badrul Muida took place. Therefore, it was not a practice of the Arabs to fight continuously, rather they would fight at intervals. The time in between would be spent in preparation of war and in other businesses. All of their battles were different links of the same chain. Since this unique point has been disregarded, some historians have stumbled because they have attempted to identify separate causes for each of the battles between the Quraysh and the Muslims. However, the truth is that when war first began between the Quraysh and the Muslims, until reconciliation took place between them through a formal treaty, i.e. the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, which took place in 6 AH, both of these nations were in a state of war. During this era, all of the battles which ensued between the two were different feats of the same war, and to search for independent causes of each is a grave error. Undoubtedly, there were times when a separate factor resulted in the occurrence of a battle in between, but the original cause always remained to be the ongoing initial conflict. Conflict. Along with this, it is also worthy of mention that on some occasions in Arab wars, and in actuality this is a practice which is found to exist in wars even today, along with the combatant tribes, other tribes would also step in due to their own national interests. For example, if a war broke out between A and B, in addition to the allies of both A and B joining them respectively during the course of war, it was also happened that for some reason a tribe would join forces for A and another tribe would join B. In this manner, the sphere of war would continue to expand. It was more or less this very situation which came about in the Islamic wars. In words, initially it was the Muslims who received an ultimatum from the Quraysh of Mecca, which they were ultimately compelled to accept. However, gradually thereafter, many other tribes continued to be enveloped into the war. For example, if the Quraysh of Mecca allied with another tribe against the Muslims. Consequently, the Muslims were put to war against that tribe as well. Or if witnessing the example of the Quraysh, another tribe instigated an offensive war of their own accord against the Muslims. War was initiated with them as well. Or if an allied tribe was treacherous towards the Muslims due to a conspiracy of the Quraysh, in this manner war was instigated with them as well. And so on and so forth. Hence, after the fire of war was first ignited, its fear continued to expand until the flames of this fire began to blaze throughout the greater part of region of Arabia in a short period of time. Categories of the Islamic Wars 
In order to attain a complete insight into the initial Islamic wars, it is also necessary to understand, as been alluded to in the above-mentioned Quranic verses and other historical accounts, that all the Islamic wars were not of the same type. Rather, they occurred due to varying factors. For example, some wars were for the purpose of protection and self-defense, i.e. the intention of the Holy Prophet was to save Islam and the Muslims from the persecution of the Quraysh and destruction. Others were for the establishment of peace, i.e. the purpose was to remove persecution in the land and establish peace. Some were for the purpose of establishing religious freedom. Others were retributive in nature, i.e. their fundamental purpose was to punish a nation, tribe, or party for a horrible crime, cruelty, oppression, or treachery. Some were political, i.e. if their purpose was to support an allied tribe or due to another political requirement of this nature. There were others which had more than one purpose and objective in view. For example, they were defensive and retributive also, are political as well as for the establishment of peace, so on and so forth. This is very crucial knowledge which some historians are unaware of. As a result, they have attempted to classify all of these wars under the same category and have consequently stumbled. At this instance, it is also necessary to allude to the fact that in the above-mentioned discussion, we have generally touched upon the purpose of defense and protection only. The reason for this is because the commencement of jihad was primarily due to this purpose, as is evident from the initial Quranic verse. The remaining purposes slowly and gradually come according to the circumstances at hand. Etiquette of Islamic Jihad Prior to mentioning the Maghazi of the Holy Prophet at this point, it seems appropriate to briefly allude to the etiquette which was generally observed by the Holy Prophet in Jihad and which was impressed upon the companions. These practices have been derived generally from the Siha Sitta, particularly from the books of Jihad, As-Sayyar, and Al-Maghazi. For this reason, I have only provided references for those points which are either greatly significant or relatively unknown, and have considered it unnecessary to provide references for the rest. Therefore, it should be known that, one, wherever possible, the Holy Prophet preferred to begin his journeys on a Thursday and would generally leave home in the morning. Number two, it was a sunnah of the Holy Prophet to pray before setting out. Number three, the Holy Prophet had established a sound system of intelligence in order to remain informed of enemy movements. Scouts were generally instructed not to speak of their intelligence in the presence of a public gathering. If the intelligence was one to create anxiety, the Holy Prophet would refrain from speaking of it publicly as well, albeit he would convey the news only to selected companions. Number four, when the Holy Prophet would set out on an expedition, it was his general practice not to reveal his point of destination. At times, if he was to travel south, for example, he would proceed a few miles north first and then divert to the south. Number five, it was a habit of the Holy Prophet to inspect the army at a short distance from the city. After ensuring that everything was in order, he would proceed onwards. Number six, whenever an important mission presented itself, the Holy Prophet would call upon the companions to participate. Then those people who were prepared for this would arrange their own equipment for war and amount, etc. 
albeit if an affluent companion had the power to do so, he would help others as well. The Holy Prophet would generally encourage such aid, and at times, whenever possible, he would provide assistance himself as well. Number seven, small children, i.e. children less than 15 years of age, were generally not taken along for war. Those children, who in their eagerness would slip through, were sent back at the time of inspection, which would usually take place outside the city. Number eight, in war, a few women would accompany the participants as well, who in addition to arranging for food would also provide medical care and nurse the wounded. During the course of battle, they would also distribute water amongst the warriors. On certain occasions, Muslim women have also been known to take up the sword against the disbelievers. Number nine, it was a practice of the Holy Prophet to take one or more of his wives along with him on such journeys, depending on the circumstances. For this purpose, the Holy Prophet would draw lots, and the wife whose name was selected would accompany him. Number 10, it was a general practice of the Holy Prophet that whenever he would receive news that an enemy tribe was preparing to wage an attack against the Muslims, he would preempt their design in an attempt to prevent the attack. The Holy Prophet would not allow the enemy to fully prepare whilst continuing to wait for an attack and then fight back after the attack was practically executed. Moreover, the Holy Prophet would make an effort for the Muslim army to arrive unexpectedly while the enemy was unaware. Due to these strategies, the Holy Prophet was able to protect the Muslims from many hardships. Number 11. Whenever the Holy Prophet would dispatch a company upon their departure, he would advise them to present three options before the enemy upon encountering them. If they were to accept any one of the three options, then they should accept it from them and halt the course of battle. First and foremost, they were to invite them to Islam, and if they became Muslim, then urge them to migrate. If they did not agree to migrate, then allow them to remain Muslim and stay in their homes. However, if they refused to become Muslims altogether, then to allow them to remain upon their religion, but call them to abstain from hostility and war against the Muslims and submit to the Islamic State. If the people refused to accept this as well, then they were permitted to fight them. Furthermore, when the Holy Prophet would dispatch a company, he would admonish them, saying, O ye Muslims, go forth in the name of Allah and perform jihad with the intention of protecting religion. But beware, do not embezzle the wealth of spoils and do not deceive a people. Do not mutilate the enemy dead. Do not kill women and children, nor religious recluses, and do not kill the elderly. Create peace in the land and treat the people with benevolence, for surely Allah loves the benevolent. It is narrated that with respect of Hazrat Abu Bakr, that when he would dispatch an army, he would advise the commander, do not cause harm to those who consider themselves to be devoted to the cause of Allah. Similarly, do not harm that which they consider to be sacred. Do not cut down a fruitful tree and do not ruin an inhabited place. It should be remembered that it was a custom in Arabia that at times children, the elderly and women were killed. On some occasions, the hands, feet, nose and ears, etc. would be mercilessly severed, which was known as mutla. The wealth, property and village of the enemy would be utterly destroyed. Treaties and agreements were of no value whatsoever. The Holy Prophet brought an end to all 
of these practices. Islam created a stark distinction in the practice of protecting religious peoples and sacred objects. It also related in various narrations that when the Holy Prophet would dispatch a company, he would exhort them, give glad tidings to the people, i.e. attempt to keep them pleased, and do not follow a course of action which brings about hatred in the hearts of people. Create ease for them and do not put them to difficulty. Number 13. It was a sure practice of the Holy Prophet that upon dispatching a party, company, or army, he would appoint an emir over them, and it would state that even if there are three men, they should appoint an emir from among themselves. The Holy Prophet would strictly order obedience to the emir and say that even if an ignorant Abyssinian slave is appointed as a leader upon you, render him full obedience. However, he would also instruct that if the emir issued an order which contradicted a clear commandment of God or his messenger, then not to obey him in such a matter. Even in this case, however, respect should be maintained. During a ghazwa when the holy prophet or his companions would ascend a height, they would recite the takbir, i.e. profess the greatness of Allah. When they would descend a height, they would recite tasbih, i.e. profess the glory of Allah. On a journey, the companions were instructed not to set up camp in a manner as would prove to be inconvenient to others. Furthermore, upon decampment, they were instructed not to march in a manner as would obstruct a path. The Holy Prophet was so strict in this regard that on one occasion he announced that an individual who does not take into consideration the convenience of others in camping and decampment would be deprived of the spiritual reward of jihad. Number 16. When the Holy Prophet encountered the enemy, he would supplicate before the commencement of fighting. Number 17. The Holy Prophet preferred fighting in the morning hours and would stop when the heat intensified and then commanded the resumption of fighting in the late afternoon. Prior to fighting, the Holy Prophet would personally arrange his ranks and greatly disliked irregularity therein. Number 19, there were generally two kinds of flags in the Muslim army. The first was white, which was tied to a staff, etc., and referred to as the liva. The second one was usually black, which was tied to a staff, etc., and would wave in the air. This one was referred to as the riya. In battle, both of these flags were given into the care of specially selected individuals. Number 20, for every battle, the Holy Prophet would generally appoint a watchword in order to distinguish between the friend and foe. Number 21, noise and confusion was disliked among the ranks and it was instructed that work be performed very silently. 22, prior to battle, the Holy Prophet would appoint commanders over the various companies of the Muslim army and would specify their positions and explain their duties. The general principle kept in mind when appointing these commanders was to appoint such individuals over a company who were considered to be influential among them. On rare occasions, there was a practice of the Holy Prophet to take a special bath from the companions. As such, the bath taken at the Treaty of Hadabiyah has been alluded to in the Holy Quran. In the field of battle, the Holy Prophet instructed not to commence fighting until he ordered to do so. Even during the course of war, the Holy Prophet would issue special orders every so often, and he would either announce them himself or through a companion who commanded a resonating voice. The Muslims were absolutely prohibited from fleeing or laying down their arms. They were ordered to either prevail or become martyrs. They were permitted, however, to fall back temporarily as a strategy of war. However, 
if due to weakness there were some who fled, the Holy Prophet would not express heavy displeasure. Rather, he would encourage them to exhibit greater resilience in the future and state. Perhaps you have fallen back as a tactic of war in order to prepare for another attack. Number 27. The companions were ordered not to strike the face of another person in battle. 28. The Holy Prophet would state, A Muslim should be most gentle of all people in inflicting an injury. 29. Strict orders were given not to take prisoners until the practical commencement of battle. It was not acceptable to catch the enemy off guard and then begin taking prisoners. 30. It was ordered that afterwards, according to the circumstances, prisoners should be set free as an act of benevolence or kept in prison if necessary. However, this imprisonment was only permitted until war ensued, or until the losses which had been incurred as a result of the war had been repaid, but not thereafter. 31. It was ordered that prisoners should be treated with great compassion and kindness. As such, history proves that due to this order of the Holy Prophet, the companions would worry about the comfort of prisoners even more than their own ease. It was also commanded by the Holy Prophet that those prisoners who are close relatives of one another should not on any account be separated. Number 32. It was not insisted that the ransom of prisoners be paid in cash only. As such, the Holy Prophet came to an agreement with various literate prisoners of Badr that they would be released if they taught Muslims how to read and write. At times, prisoners of the disbelievers were released in exchange for Muslim prisoners. Even in the case of a monetary ransom, the practice of Mukattabat was allowed. 33. Muslims were very strictly forbidden from plundering, pillaging, and destruction. As such, this has already been discussed in some detail above. 34. It was ordered that even in the course of battle, if an enemy declared his acceptance of Islam, no harm was to be done from him, irrespective of how severe an injury he may have inflicted upon the Muslims, because now there was no fear of danger from him. In this respect, the account of Osama bin Zaid has already been mentioned above. 35. It was very strictly ordered that treaties and agreements be adhered to. In this regard, the Holy Prophet himself was particularly mindful. On the occasion of Badr, Hudayfa bin Yaman migrated from Makkah and submitted to the Holy Prophet that, When I was about to leave Makkah on suspension that I was leaving to aid you, the Quraysh made me agree that I would not fight on your behalf. Upon this, the Holy Prophet responded, Then go and fulfill your promise, and succor of God is sufficient for us. This was the extreme caution of the Holy Prophet. Even though as far as an edict is concerned, an agreement which is taken by compulsion is not legally binding. Furthermore, during his Khilafat, Hazrat Umar went so far as to declare that any Muslim who defrauds an enemy or does not fulfill his agreement would be executed. 36. The bodies of those Muslims who were martyred in the field of battle were not bathed or shrouded. Number 37. In the case of emergency, numerous martyrs were buried in the same grave, and upon such occasions, those people were lowered into the grave first, who had committed more of the Holy Quran to memory. Moreover, it was instructed that martyrs should be buried in the very field of battle. 38. The funeral prayer of martyrs was at times offered immediately after battle, and on some occasions, when a state of peace was not at hand, it was offered at another time. 39. It was, in so far as possible, a practice of the Holy Prophet to arrange for the burial of the enemy dead as well. 40. Those who fight in the Islamic wars were not paid. 41. 
the wealth of spoils was distributed according to the principle that the commander of the army would first select an item for himself from the spoils, which was known as Safiya. Then one-fifth of the entire wealth was put aside for God and his messenger, after which the remaining wealth was equally divided amongst the army whereby one was mounted received two additional portions as compared to those on foot. Furthermore, the personal belongings on the body of a disbeliever who had been killed was considered to be the right of the one who had killed him. 42. The one-fifth portion known as Humus, which was put aside for God and his messenger, was divided such that some of it was distributed amongst the family and relatives of the Holy Prophet Most of it, however, was spent on the collective religious and national needs of the Muslims. It is for this reason that on one occasion the Holy Prophet said to the companions that, except for the Humus, it is unlawful for me to take even as much as the hair of a camel from the wealth of spoils, and even this khumas is put to your use. 43. The manner in which the Salat was offered in the field of battle was that although the Imam would remain the same throughout, members of the army would offer their Salat behind the Imam in sections, one after the other, while the rest of the army would confront the enemy. This was known as the Salat de Khauf, and in varying circumstances its form was different. Number 44. In the beginning, the companions would fast whilst on journey, while others would not. However, in later days, the Holy Prophet ﷺ instructed not to observe the fast whilst on journey, and he would say that it was not a virtuous deed to fast whilst on journey. As regards to those companions who fast anyway, considering this commandment of the Holy Prophet to be a mere recommendation, the Holy Prophet said, These people have acted disobediently. 45. It was a custom in Arabia to execute a spy, and the Holy Prophet maintained this penalty. 46. The Holy Prophet would strictly prohibit the arrest of an ambassador, or to cause him any harm or kill him. As such, on one occasion, some people came to the Holy Prophet as ambassadors of the Quraysh and spoke very inappropriately. The Holy Prophet said, You are ambassadors, therefore I am not permitted to respond harshly. On another occasion, upon meeting the Holy Prophet, an ambassador became Muslim and submitted to the Holy Prophet that, Now I do not wish to return. The Holy Prophet responded, I shall not partake in a breach of trust. You are an ambassador and therefore must return. Afterwards, if you wish, you may come back. As such, he returned and after some time found an opportunity and came back. 47. When the regions of Mecca and Medina had been cleansed of the element of polytheism, it was announced at the time that even then, if a foreign disbeliever should desire to visit Hijaz for religious investigations, then he may gladly do so. The Holy Prophet announced that he would take responsibility for his protection and safe return. 48. The Holy Prophet would remain particularly mindful of the security and rights of those disbelievers who had entered into a treaty with the Muslims. As such, the Holy Prophet would state, A Muslim who kills a covenanting disbeliever would not even be able to perceive the breeze of paradise. Moreover, the Holy Prophet also commanded that a Muslim who kills a covenanting disbeliever unintentionally by mistake must, in addition to full paying the blood money to the heirs of the deceased also free a slave.
Number 49, with respect to a covenanting disbeliever, the Holy Prophet also said, O ye Muslims, remember that on a day of resurrection, I shall seek justice on behalf of a covenanting disbeliever who is wronged by a Muslim or caused any harm, or given a responsibility or burden beyond his power, or deprived of something without his pleasure and consent. Number 50, when the Holy Prophet would go forth against a people in war, after acquiring a victory, he would generally not stay there for more than three days. The reason for this was perhaps to ensure that the presence of the Muslim army should not become a source of inconvenience or trouble for the local people. 51. In the end, but perhaps most importantly in jihad, any other motive except for the safeguarding of religion or to bring an end to mischief was considered unlawful. It was a general declaration of the Holy Prophet that an individual who goes forth out of the greed for spoils or for the exhibition of bravery or for any other worldly purpose would be absolutely deprived of the spiritual reward of jihad. In this regard, a somewhat detailed discussion has been taken up above. At this occasion, it would not be out of place to mention the manner in which fighting took place in Arabia during the time. As such, when armies would line up before one another, selected warriors would come forward for individual battle and call for duel. And it was after these duels that a full-scale attack was launched. It was a custom to fight both on horseback as well as on foot, but fighting on horseback was preferred. Camels were generally used only as a means of conveyance or to carry provisions. Weapons of war for offense were limited to the sword, spear, and the bow and arrow. The shield, coat of mail, and helmet were used for defense. In some tribes, a mechanism was utilized to catapult stones upon the enemy. The concept for this machine probably came to Arabia from Iran. The Holy Prophet ﷺ made use of this on the occasion of the siege of Taif. Commencement of Jihad and Precautionary Measures of the Holy Prophet It has already been mentioned that the first Quranic verse which allowed Jihad by the sword was revealed on 12 Safar 2AH. In other words, the divine indication which was made of defensive war in the migration was officially announced in Safar 2AH when the Holy Prophet had become discharged of his initial undertakings relevant to his stay at Medina in this manner, jihad began. It is discovered through history that the Holy Prophet initially employed four strategies in order to protect the Muslims from the evil of the disbelievers. This is conclusive evidence of the expert political aptitude and military insight of the Holy Prophet. These strategies are as follows. Firstly, the Holy Prophet began traveling to nearby tribes and establishing peace treaties with them so that the surrounding region of Medina would become free of threat. In this respect, the Holy Prophet gave special consideration to those tribes who are situated close to the Syrian trade routes of the Quraysh. As every individual may gather, it was these tribes in particular from whom the Quraysh of Mecca could have derived most benefit against the Muslims, and whose enmity could have resulted in severe threats for the Muslims. 
Secondly, the Holy Prophet began to dispatch small companies in order to obtain intelligence in different directions from Medina, so that he was able to remain informed of the movements of the Quraysh and their allies. And the Quraysh also understood that the Muslims were not oblivious, so that in this manner Medina could be safeguarded from the dangers of sudden attacks. Thirdly, another wisdom in dispatching these parties was that the weak and poor Muslims of Makkah and its surrounding areas could find an opportunity by these means to join the Muslims of Medina. Until now, there were many people in the region of Makkah who were Muslims at heart, but were unable to publicly profess their belief in Islam due to the cruelties of the Quraysh. Furthermore, due to their poverty and weakness, they were unable to migrate either because the Quraysh would force Forcefully hold back such people from migrating. As such, Allah states in the Holy Quran, O ye believers, there is no reason that you fight not for the protection of religion and for those men, women, and children who are in a state of weakness, who supplicate, saying, O our Lord, take us out of this town whose people are oppressors, and make for us who are weak a friend and helper from thyself. Hence, one wisdom in dispatching these parties was so that such people could receive the opportunity to be delivered from a wrongdoing people. In other words, such people could reach close to Medina along with the caravans of the Quraysh and then escape to join the Muslim forces. Therefore, it is evident through history that when the Holy Prophet ﷺ dispatched the very first company in the leadership of Abu Ubaidah bin al-Harith, who happened to encounter a group led by Ikrama bin Abi Jahal, Two weak Muslims who had come along with the Quraysh managed to escape from the Quraysh and join the Muslims. As such is narrated, in this campaign, when the Muslim party encountered the army of the Quraysh, two people, namely Mikdad bin Amr and Utbah bin Ghazwan, who were allies of the Banu Zahra and Banu Nafal, fled from the idolaters and joined the Muslims. They were Muslims and had only set out to join the Muslims under the cover of Quraysh. Therefore, one of the purposes of the Holy Prophet in dispatching these parties was also to give such people an opportunity to be delivered from the Quraysh and join the Muslims. Fourthly, the fourth strategy employed by the Holy Prophet was that he began to intercept the trade caravans of the Quraysh, which traveled from Makkah to Syria, passing by Medina en route. The reason being that firstly, these caravans would spark a fire of enmity against the Muslims wherever they traveled. It is obvious that for a seed of enmity to be sown in the environs of Medina was extremely dangerous for the Muslims. Secondly, these caravans would always be armed and every one can appreciate that for such caravans to pass by so close to Medina was not empty of danger. Thirdly, the livelihood of the Quraysh primarily depended on trade. Therefore, in these circumstances, the most definitive and effective means by which the Quraysh could be subdued, their cruelties could be put to an end, and they could be pressed to reconciliation was by obstructing their trade route. As such, history testifies to the fact that among the factors which ultimately compelled the Quraysh to incline towards reconciliation, the interception of these trade caravans played an extremely pivotal role.
Hence, this was an extremely sagacious strategy, which yielded fruits of success at the appropriate time. Fourthly, the revenue from these caravans of the Quraysh was mostly spent in efforts to eliminate Islam. Rather, some caravans were even sent for the sole purpose that their entire profit may be utilized against the Muslims. In this case, every individual can understand that the interception of these caravans was in its own right an absolutely legitimate motive. Various prejudiced Christian historians to whom even the qualities of Islam are perceived as a form of evil have raised the allegation that God forbid the Holy Prophet and the companions would set out for the purpose of plundering the caravans of the Quraysh. We would like to inquire of these people who are an embodiment of justice and equity, that do your nations whom you consider to be the epitomes of civility and nobility not obstruct the trade routes of enemy nations? When they receive news that a trade vessel belonging to such and such enemy nation is passing by, so and so place, do they not immediately dispatch a naval company in its pursuit so as to destroy it, or employ a strategy to subdue it and take possession of its wealth? Then for this reason can your leaders be labeled as robbers, pillagers, and plunders? Verily, if the Muslims intercepted the caravans of the Quraysh, purpose was not to take possession of the wealth of their caravans. Rather, military tactics demanded that the trade route of the Quraysh be obstructed because there was no better means by which they could be brought to their senses and pushed to reconciliation. Aside from this, if a caravan of the Quraysh happened to be defeated and as a result of this defeat, its wealth and riches came to the Muslims, then this was a part of the victories of war to which a victor has always been deemed entitled in every nation and every era. Do Opponents mean to say that undoubtedly the Muslims were at a right to intercept the caravans of the disbelievers and kill their men, but should have refrained from bringing the wealth of their caravans into their own control, rather should have transported this wealth to Mecca with extreme care at their own expense and in the protection of their army, so that with the aid of this wealth, the Quraysh could have prepared another two or four mighty armies and invaded Medina. If this is their view, then let it be blessed for them. We admit that the doctrine of Islam is clear of such foolishness, shamelessness, and teachings of suicide. To assert that in the interception of these caravans, the Muslims were given teachings of pillage and plunder is a grave injustice and far from equity. Were such a people given teachings of pillage and plunder, among whom there were a few who during the journey of jihad strained by extreme hunger, and if having reached the mouth of death, caught and slaughtered two or four goats from a flock, but when the holy prophet arrived, he angrily upset their pots. He began to grind the meat beneath his feet and said, Who has made this plunder lawful for you? This is no better than carrion. Then were such a people given teachings of pillage and plunder among whom there were new Muslims that would inquire of the Holy Prophet upon setting out for jihad that, O Messenger of Allah, if the actual intention of an individual who takes part in jihad is to safeguard religion, but the thought crosses his mind that he may also receive the wealth of spoils as well, would such a person be worthy of spiritual reward? The Holy Prophet would receive respond saying absolutely not absolutely not there is no spiritual reward whatsoever for such a person 
In light of these instances, can the interception of these caravans constitute a teaching of pillage and plunder? Then not only would the Holy Prophet constantly explain to the companions that there should be no taint of worldly motive in jihad, but this teaching of the Holy Prophet had an impact on the companions as well. So profound was this impression that not only did this endeavor to prevent thoughts of materialism from taking root in their own hearts, rather on some occasions, they would even avoid such lawful opportunities where it was apprehended that thoughts of this nature could develop among weaker dispositions. As such, it is related with regards to the Ghazwa of Badr that many companions did not participate in this Ghazwa because they thought that this campaign was only to intercept a caravan. Otherwise, had they known that war was to take place with the army of the Quraysh, they would have definitely taken part. This is practical evidence to substantiate that in the interception of these caravans, the companions had no interest in their wealth and riches. The reason being that if this was the case, then the state of affairs should have been that the companions would have come forward to participate in greater majority, while here the situation seems to be the exact opposite. I do not imply that all of the companions were the same. Undoubtedly, among them were weaker ones as well, and naturally this weakness was relatively greater in the beginning. However, the transformation which the community of companions exhibited under the training of the Holy Prophet as a whole is remarkably astounding and truly unparalleled.